Welcome. Good afternoon. Listen, uh, there's people standing in the back, so we need you to scoot in a little bit if you could. That would be wonderful. Thanks for showing up this Easter. We so appreciate it. And um, just so you know, we do have a service coming up tomorrow morning at 9, and so we'd like to invite you to that as well. But I thought we'd talk a little bit. I thought we'd talk a little bit today, starting from Good Friday and kind of moving through the weekend because this term Good Friday is something I've never really liked. It feels weird to call it Good Friday because nothing really good seemed to happen on that day. I mean, on this day we see Jesus hanging on a cross to die. And in the final three hours of his life, we see Jesus saying four statements. And these statements define his ministry and certainly remind us of his love. So I'll be reading from Matthew first, and then we'll move over to the Lucan account and jump into John a little bit as well. Matthew 27, 45. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. But this wasn't normal darkness. This was the whole earth moaning. The darkness that comes before the dawn, when the night is at its darkest and the quiet is so loud it screams at you. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out, with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, where did you go? This is his first statement. I mean, how can it be a good Friday if this is what is being said? And, you know, there's a lot of questions. Was this a prayer? Was this a song? Was this a cry? Was this a quote? Was this a declaration of victory? And scholars have said that is every single one of those. But I wonder if it wasn't a moment when Jesus was experiencing something new. I mean, what happens when you experience something new? Something that you don't have a category for. Like, have you ever seen those videos on the internet when parents who've just been feeding like squash and beans to their child give them ice cream for the first time? <laughs> You've seen that. That child has no category for that kind of joy. They shake, they look around like, what is this? I didn't know the world could experience this much joy. My little tiny world that I've lived in has had mashed carrots and beans. And then some parents give their child a lemon. Same thing, just the opposite. Or when you see someone who's lived their whole life colorblind and they put on those glasses that correct it and they start weeping because they didn't know there was such beauty in the world. We don't always have categories for things. And on the cross, we see Jesus who did not have a category for disconnection. He did not have a category for being alone. He did not have a category for abject rejection. No category for this kind of pain. No category for separation. Why not? Because he was fully connected to God all the time. He was the most human because he was fully connected to God and fully connected to those around him. And now he's in, he is experiencing the pain of separation, which is a particular kind of pain. And if you have lost someone that you care for deeply, you understand that kind of pain. The pain of separation was nothing that Jesus had ever experienced before because he had never had to. Being so disconnected to his father. And so he cries out. And yes, it was a quote from Psalm 22. And yes, it's possible that he would have sang it. 
but I believe it was the true cry of dereliction given in his vernacular. Jesus quoting scripture because that's what you did when you're in the midst of trauma, when you're in the midst of pain. You go to what you know the best. And so he quotes scripture, my God, my God, why have you left me here all alone? That's his first statement. The second statement seems much less profound. Jesus knew that his mission was finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Now we're reading from John, and John the narrator likes to take some, some opportunity to tell us why Jesus said what he did. He said, I'm thirsty. And in John it says that was to fulfill scripture, but let's not get there too quickly. It's interesting because some commentaries have actually said, well, actually Jesus was quoting himself because in Matthew 5, 6, he says, you must hunger and thirst for righteousness. But I think that might be an over-spiritualization. Because what we're dealing with is a human being who had just been through unreasonable trauma, beating, suffering, mockery, burden, dragging the crossbeam of the cross up to Golgotha as far as he could until they gave it to Simeon. Being nailed to a cross, hanging there on a cross. I mean, is it any wonder that he was thirsty? Because you would be as well. His ordeal was not simply spiritual, it was physical. And I guess that begs a question, is our ordeal that we go through with our spiritual lives just spiritual or is it physical as well? The truth is it is. Because our well-being spiritually is deeply affected by our well-being physically. And this connection shouldn't be forgotten. I mean, there are times where you're too tired to pray where you are too exhausted to open up scripture, where you're physically in too much pain and going through too much trauma to experience the presence of God. These are real things. And on this cross, the impact of the physical suffering is just as important as it leads us to remember that Christ was both 100% human and 100% divine. In fact, it's said that redemption is only found in Christ's full embracing of his humanity, and we should embrace his humanity as well. By doing so, we embrace our humanity and our human condition. So we could ask this question, are you thirsty? And what do you thirst after? And can the cross satiate some of that spiritual thirst? But John did say it was to fulfill prophecy. So what about prophecy? Right? Psalm 22, Psalm 69 speak directly to him saying that he's thirsty. Certainly there's a ton of prophecy about the Messiah, but there's one salient point that John was trying to make. What he's trying to say is that Jesus did not come out of nowhere. Right? We don't want to think that Jesus just showed up and nobody would have known who he was because he completed all the Old Testament symbols, all the Old Testament prophecies, all the foreshadowing, 300 detailed prophecies of Jesus. Statement number two. Statement number three, when Jesus had tasted this, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And I gotta tell you, this statement right here, that it is finished, should not be underestimated. Because truthfully, our faith tradition has had some trouble over the years trying to figure out exactly what was finished. Right? Let me be clear on what Jesus said on the cross. 
He said, it is finished. He didn't say, it is almost done. All you have to do is be pretty much perfect, and then it's done. He didn't say that. He didn't say, once you work out your problems, then you'll be worthy to accept this sacrifice on the cross. He didn't say that. He said, it is finished. You want to know what's finished? Let me be super clear on this. The power of sin was broken on this Friday, this Good Friday. Even if there wasn't anything else that happened afterwards, we know this, God died for us in our stead and in our place, and the power of sin was broken in this world. And all of our understanding and all of our theology fall into place when we understand that this is the height of his love for us. And the apex of scripture, Friday is good, it's news. But paired with Sunday, it's good news. It's amazing. Statement number three. Statement number four, then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. And I, I've always kind of considered this as a bookend to what happened in creation when God breathed the breath of life into Adam. Now we see Jesus giving it back. Sin came into the world through one man, through that breath of life that God had breathed into Adam. Now it's being given back to God through Jesus as salvation came into the world through one man as it talks about in Romans 5. The breath of life borrowed from God at creation, now given back. But there's one other part of this that's really important. Jesus shouts, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. You see, Jesus chose where it would go. Jesus didn't have to be on the cross. You understand that, right? At any point in time in the life and ministry of Jesus, he could have said, you know what, that's enough. I don't think I need any more of this. He could have left. This is what the temptations were all about from the beginning. Jesus choosing to stay, he could have left the cross. He could have left the earth. He could have left us alone, but he didn't. He chose to stay. He chose to go to the cross. He chose to save us, and he chose to give the Spirit back to God. So we see these four statements, and then we see Jesus dying. And I've always wondered, did Jesus know did he know he was coming back in a few hours? Did he know that Sunday was coming? I don't quote Ellen White a lot, but one of my favorite quotes is she said that when he hung on the cross, he could not see beyond the portholes of the grave. You see, what Jesus was experiencing on the cross, it's why he said, Lama, Lama, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. The reason why he said this is because he was experiencing trauma. And when you experience trauma in your life, it doesn't really matter what you know. It doesn't really matter what you have thought about or studied. The only thing you can think about when you're experiencing trauma is how do I make it stop? And so when Jesus felt the weight of the burden of sin of the world on his shoulders, hanging on a cross, he cries out in true dereliction and in true honesty, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His sacrifice was total because I believe at that moment he couldn't see beyond the grave and he was willing to die for us anyway. He was not play acting. He was not assured of anything but of the love that he had for us. 
And listen, I know there's scriptures about rebuilding the temple in three days, but that cry on that cross, those words, he was done. And I don't think in that moment Jesus knew that Sunday was coming. I think what he knew is that he loved you enough to die for you. His sacrifice was total. But you know, I think about, I think about the disciples struggling with living after the crucifixion. They thought their trajectory was so different. We talked about it last week, right? They went from Sunday believers to Thursday deceivers. Now Jesus is gone and they're huddled in whatever room they found themselves in trying to figure out how to be okay with it. Have you ever lost someone? Because if you have, you know what that conversation sounds like. First of all, internally, what do I do now? How do I live after the crucifixion, after Jesus is gone? Now, what do I do? How am I gonna be okay with this? How is this gonna be well with my soul? And they were in a room together, so my bet is the conversation was, we did not see that coming. We thought for sure things were gonna be different. How are we supposed to be okay with this? He said so many things about his kingdom. He said so many things about what was gonna happen. How come it went down like this? We thought there was gonna be kingdom and now there's crucifixion. How do we live after? And how do we become okay with it? Then I don't know, I don't think we ever become okay with losing that person that we love or those people that we love. We have to find a place in figuring out how to live that way. So for the disciples, it was life after crucifixion. How do we figure it out? And how do we make it okay? Sorrow like sea billows roll. 
So the next thing we see in Scripture is running. There was this running down to see the tomb, running down to finish the work of preparing the body for the grave. It wasn't even prepared for the grave. The running of having had to wait before they could get to him. The women thinking and speaking in their particular worldview that if they didn't prepare this body, it wouldn't really be prepared to stay in the tomb. Luke 24, 1, but very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, a load of spices they had prepared. And when they get there, they found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. A shocking discovery. I don't know if you've ever walked into a place where you've been robbed or you walk out to your car and the window's been broken and it takes a while for you to put that in a category. You stand there looking at your car thinking, what? I don't, I thought I closed the window. Why is it on the floor? And it takes you a while to recognize the violation and that's what they were experiencing, right? They were experiencing a violation. The tomb had been open and they had to put it in a category because the category wasn't going to be resurrection. That doesn't happen. The category is going to be theft. The category is going to be destruction. The category is going to be vandalism. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of Jesus. And as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. I can't believe that that stopped them from being puzzled. Because it takes a while to recognize when something is supposed to be somewhere and then it's not there. When something's supposed to make sense and it doesn't. And then these guys show up in dazzling robes, all bedazzled apparently. And the women were terrified, rightfully so. They bowed their faces to the ground 
And then they get chastised. Because the men said, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? Wait, what? That's a reprimand. You should have known he was gone. You should have known he would have moved on. You should have known no tomb could have held him. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee? Ah, uh, teaching moment. We don't like those. You see, Jesus has been leaving hints about Sunday for a really long time. That the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And then he would rise again on the third day. You, don't you remember? Jesus had been leaving breadcrumbs of this story the whole time. You know what we call them today? He'd been leaving Easter eggs. Then and only then, when they were told and reminded of what they had learned, then they remembered that he had said this. Sometimes we have to be reminded of the obvious. So what do we get? We get running. They're running again, moving quickly to assure they catch everyone who's still at the house. Because you understand what happens when a group of people don't know what to do. They're there held together, and after a while, their disappointment and their, their lack of understanding of what's supposed to happen next. How do we live after the crucifixion? Man, it just makes them dissipate and eventually disappear. So they rush back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else, because it wasn't just the disciples, it was everyone else what had happened. And when you find what you've been looking for, you want everyone to know. The people who were there were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. It was this cadre of women who had gone down to do what they were allowed to do for Jesus, finally. But now they're excited, and they're rushing back to tell the men. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. That's a pretty common story. But it's not misogyny. It's because what they were saying was unreasonable. Because they weren't saying something that the men expected to hear. And my bet is they were so excited that they were all speaking at once. And the men are like, wait, what? What are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense. What do you mean he's not dead? What do you mean he's not in the tomb? What do you mean you saw two bedazzled men telling you what had just happened? None of this makes sense. Because it's hard to live after the resurrection. But after you've experienced the crucifixion, it's hard to put your mind in the right place. I mean, what would you believe after the resurrection? What would you do? What do you do now? How has this reality changed your life? How do you believe in the resurrection and the life of Jesus? Peter didn't know what to do with it. You see, he'd been living after the crucifixion. All of a sudden, he's living after the resurrection. He's not sure what to do with it, so he needs to go confirm. So Peter jumps up. He runs down to the tomb to look. Stooping in, he peered and saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. That doesn't give us a lot of information. He didn't go back jumping and leaping and praising God. He went back saying, what in the world? 
This man of action looks into the tomb and he realized that something had happened and he was living now in the aftermath of something, something big, something huge, something that would change everything. I mean, how do you live after a tectonic shift in your worldview and your understanding of how things work? When something is so big, it feels like the earth moves and it feels like nothing will be the same ever again. And it wasn't and it won't be. And it isn't. You see, Peter, living after the crucifixion, must have thought he was alone. He must have thought, I got to now do this myself. I had a best friend. I had a mentor. I had a rabbi. I had a teacher. And now I've got to do it on my own. And I don't even know how it's supposed to work. And they all would have had to deal with that pain of separation, thinking that they were alone. And that they wouldn't know what was supposed to happen next. But do you think Peter understood at this point in the story that he would never be alone again? Do you know that at this point in the story you will never be alone again? And we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to point us back to Jesus, to counsel and guide and fill us. And you know, some people, I think, feel like the resurrection was a taking away that Jesus ultimately would leave because we know in 40 days later, he ascended to heaven, so he did leave. But the resurrection has never been a taking away. It has always been a giving to. See, what the resurrection gives us is a new perspective. What the resurrection gives us is a new hope. What the resurrection gives us is a new trajectory. What the resurrection gives us is a new reality and worldview. What the resurrection gives us is a different way of seeing every person that walks through your eyesight. It makes us look at death differently. It makes us look at life differently. It makes us look at sin and victory over sin differently. It makes us look at, at the worst situation that we could ever go through differently than if the resurrection had not happened. We are not living in, after the crucifixion, friends. We are living after the resurrection. At this point in the story, Peter had to wrestle with what all this meant. And in this point of the story, you have to wrestle with what all this means. But I'll tell you one thing that we can be assured of. It means that the resurrection is given to you. And you no longer have to live a trajectory that ends in the tomb. You now live a trajectory that ends with ascension into heaven and with the hope of glory. And you see, this all happened because what we thought was a failure at the cross, what we thought was suffering and death was actually victory and hope. What we thought was watching this man, this son of God who became a son of suffering, die, we just didn't know. 
that it would lead to resurrection life. I think some of us still live after the crucifixion in the hope that someday victory might come. In the hope of someday Jesus might return somehow incredulously and that life will get better. Those disciples only had a few hours to live that reality. Some of us have lived it our whole lives. The choice you have to make is if you're going to live after the crucifixion or if you're going to live after the resurrection. But the reality is that the son of suffering allows you to live on, allows you to live with hope and grace and peace and love. And we recognize that what he did for us on the cross has always changed everything. And now we live in the after.